Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Suzette Mayer, led by Mahmoud Abavne. In this interview, Mahmoud and Suzette discuss her latest novel, Edith Vane and the Hairs of Crawley Hall, and the surreality of academia both within the novel and in Suzette's personal experience. As well, Suzette discusses literature's potential as a form of activism and resistance, but is mindful that it must also be art, written with BIPOC characters that reflect whole lives. Over the course of the conversation, Suzette talks about her writing and academic trajectories and how they have shaped her novels up until now and where she is heading to next. Mahmoud Abadne is pursuing a PhD in English literature at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 territory. His research centers around trans-Indigenous and post-colonial literatures, decolonization, and settler colonialism. Mahmoud is currently teaching at Red Deer Polytechnic. His work appeared in the Journal of Holy Land and Palestine Studies. Suzette Mayer is the author of five novels, including Monoceros, which was awarded the Relit Award, the W.O. Mitchell Award, and was long-listed for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Her most recent novel is Dr. Edith Vane and the Hairs of Crawley Hall. She has published articles in Horror Studies, Canadian Literature, Studies in Canadian Literature, the Journal of the Association for the Study of Australian Literature, and in Antipodes. She teaches creative writing at the University of Calgary. Thanks, Suzette, for being with us today. Thank you. I just uh, finished reading your book, uh, your novel, Dr. Edith Vane and the Hairs of Crowley Hall, and I was so moved, and it's, it's a great work. But before we talk about it, I'm just interested to know, I know you are so busy now, so just tell me how do you manage being a teacher and associate head for the graduate program? Because that's all gonna, I'm gonna tie that all to the novel. But I'm just wondering, like, how do you manage doing all that work? Uh, not very well, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> not having enough boundaries. I suppose it's just, I've had to learn 
that it's just a job and as such I do deserve evenings off and I do deserve to have at least one day a week off to live my life so it's I've had to learn quite recently to just make sure that I compartmentalize things properly and that everything is just a meeting so I have to have a meeting with myself as a writer so that I work on my creative writing. I have to have a meeting, you know, meetings with other people, a meeting with my class that I'm teaching, a meeting with whatever sorts of obligations I have with the associate head position. So that's, that's basically it. It's just having a really, really, really thorough calendar and making sure that I'm portioning finite amounts of time to everything. Does the pandemic change things? Because now we are all working remotely. And everything is now on Zoom and or other kind of communications online. So do you think that adds more burden because people feel comfortable in their zones and they talk to you more and they, they take more, more time than they are supposed to be? As in your, if you are in your office, they might just say what they want to say and leave. Or do you think being working remotely made things easier for you? I think it's a combination of both. I remember... When we were in person, I, there would just be certain days, you know, afternoons, whatever, here and there, where I would just sit there with the office door open and people could come by and they could just drop by. I could handle two or three things at the same time, you know, and that's not the case now. Now I have to like book a separate Zoom meeting with everybody. And so the time is allotted differently. And I find that a little bit draining. And it's also just tough on the body. You know, like I'm developing hip issues and that kind of thing, which I think a lot of people are just from sitting too much. And even though, you know, you try to exercise, it's just not enough. But that said, I did a lot of work from home anyway. So it's not that huge of a difference. It's just the not seeing people in the hallways and not being able to have those open office hours and have that kind of those kind of that kind of casual rapport, which I think is such an important glue, you know, for the community, the academic community, certainly our department. I, I like being at home with my partner and my animals, but I miss that camaraderie in the hallways. And I also did not realize how important it is to walk from building to building, from meeting to meeting as just a break, as a mini break. I had no idea. No idea. Seems that you enjoyed moving from one building to another more than Dr. Vane. But before, <laughs> before, we, <laughs> before we jump to that, pre-COVID, I know... I know your offices, you have two offices, and this is full disclosure that my office was across from yours, and you have two offices, one located on the 10th floor and one on the 11th. Yeah. So my question is, do you often take the elevator or the stairs to get up there? I take the stairs. <laughs> I, okay, I'll qualify that though. From the main floor, I have tried to do the walk up to the 11th floor. And by the time I get upstairs, I'm just so sweaty and huffing and puffing that I've only done it a few times, but I would always walk down the stairs. Always, always, always walk down. Because I remember seeing you a couple of times taking, and that's kind of motivate me to do that. And I kind of start doing that, particularly on the way home, because as you said, you don't want to be sweaty. But when yeah. you are going home, it's okay. You can yeah. shower. <laughs> yes, you can. So, or not. <laughs> so does taking the stairs, have, does it have anything to do with Dr. Bain? 
or it was just kind of that's a choice okay so edith vane it's not autobiographical but it is definitely it's me thinking of my absolute worst self so if i were to be my absolute worst self and instead of turning right i had turned left instead of making this decision i made that decision that's where edith vane comes from so i have to confess you know there have been periods in my academic career where i have not wanted to see certain people for different reasons and so the easiest way to do that is to just go the back stairs so that's how that worked or you know as well those elevators are so slow they're ridiculous you can walk faster then those elevators move so it's just easier you know i i would rather just take the stairs it's just especially because i'm perennially late for classes so i have to i have to get there quick i cannot stand around waiting for an elevator or do that where you're in the elevator on the 11th floor and it stops at every floor i just i can't stand it back to the novel then since you mentioned it's not autobiographical or not completely autobiographical not completely yeah so you describe the architecture in the novel as brutalist yeah. which makes me wonder like was that physical description of the building or it was beyond that brutalism is a legitimate form but i was talking to somebody in the architecture program at uc and he said it's more of a modernist mishmash so basically the building is a combination of the social sciences building and also craigie hall and if there's anything that is properly brutalist my understanding is there's a there's a sort of tower in craigie hall that is more brutalist but when i found out the name of that kind of architecture that so many university campuses have i thought that's just so absolutely appropriate to have it called brutalist i thought that's beautiful so it was just kind of a convenient convenient coincidence amazing Karina Vernon, she read your novel through the lens of Sarah Ahmed, and she caught Sarah Ahmed in her article. Karina wrote an amazing article about your novel, The Outside oh. of the Inside. And in that uh, article, she quotes Ahmed's terms. And here's I'm quoting uh, Sarah Ahmed's term that Karina Vernon used. Sarah Ahmed says, the only practical labor of coming up against the institution allows this wall to become apparent. to those who don't come up against it the wall doesn't appear the institution is experienced as being open committed and diverse end quote so how do you see that wall because the the, the scene was dr van trying to push the door or pull the door open but it's it feels like a wall and those walls are invisible to some but are visible and they are a barrier to others. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, so just to be honest, when I first started at the University of Calgary in 2003, I had a very hard time. It was very very hard. Um I had been working at what is now the Alberta University for the Arts. When I was teaching there it was the Alberta College of the Arts and then Alberta College of Arts and Design. So it was a very different kind of environment. I was teaching first and second year English. I was surrounded by artists. it was just a very thriving strange place you never had to justify your existence as a creative writer and then when i got to uc there seemed to be a bit more reticence around creative writers that somehow we were a little bit strange some uncertainty around whether we actually belonged there i i definitely read that off of certain people 
And so one of the first questions I got, I, I think I had just started the job. I think I'd literally been there maybe one or two weeks. And the head at the time, whom I will not name, said to me, you know, you don't have a PhD. You, uh, the University of Calgary has a program where you can go away and get a PhD and, we'll, and the university will pay 50% of your salary. And I remember thinking, have you said that to Fred Waugh or to Aretha Van Herc or to Tom Wayman? Did you say that to them? And I can pretty much guarantee probably not. So why are you comfortable saying that to me? I didn't say this to her, but this is what I was feeling. And then there was also a dean who was quite hostile. I, I just remember, you know, there's this whole merit increment system where you have to uh, basically report, and, I, and I'm saying this, you know, for people who don't know what this is, but basically where you have to, every two years, at the time it was every year, every two years you have to fill out a report saying what you've accomplished, and then you get basically a grade that's connected to money. And I was constantly underscoring, and I knew it, and so I would have to appeal and appeal and appeal. And it was really, really discouraging. It was really discouraging because I would win those appeals. And so what that was saying to me was that my work was not being valued. And why wasn't it being valued? I don't know, because I can't get inside people's heads. It could be because I was a younger Black woman. It could be because I was doing creative writing. Who knows? So that wall was there early, early, early on. And so I just kind of, my parents are so my mother was a nurse in Calgary and so I kind of grew up on the picket line because the nurses were always on strike all the time my father was a union steward and very pro-union you know we had a picture of Karl Marx in our living room and so it was sort of like I'm gonna fight don't keep my money away from me I'm gonna fight this so it was just as basic as don't you know people don't deserve to be paid more than me for the same work and so that was something I was up against at the University of Calgary. I also noticed also at the Alberta College of Art when I was there was that as, you know, a young woman, I definitely was underestimated over and over and over again. And so I had to kind of fight that. And so, you know, as soon as I got my gray hair, I just thought I'm, it's staying because I just, I needed that extra authority. It was just so hard to be taken seriously for a long time. So I definitely have encountered that wall over and over and over again in different ways. It's a lot easier now. I think I'm a lot older and have been around the block a few times and also made sure that I, you know, whenever I had a question about something, I reached out to more senior people to ask them what I should do. I want to say that this wall is, is like magic, right? Doesn't go away. Even if you can imagine this wall is not there, but it, it actually is there. And it affects people based on, as you mentioned, where they come from, race, gender, and many other factors. And it's just kind of transforms into different shapes as we progress. And you feel the institution has certain tricks that they can transform this wall from one shape to another to keep it invisible. But it's invisible for some but it's a big burden for other people and yeah. while they pursue their like studies or their work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That leads me to ask in your novel, you mentioned that Edith cares only about her author that she's, she likes to talk about. 
and she said all uh, the narrator now is saying all she cares about is Beulah Crumb Withers, but no one ever wants to talk about. Is this line or that kind of pushing back, talking about these authors, is this a commentary on and a critique of how we still worship and idealize the European literary canon as the only way to teach in the literary studies and any other authors would be not interesting for discussion? I think, yeah, in a way, for sure. It also is about how, you know, as I was coming up in my career, I noticed that there were only certain kinds of scholarship that were valued. And so I remember there were people who were interested in reading quilts and quilting as texts, and they were just dismissed as this is not legitimate work. I remember for a long time, there was this idea, people who I respect wanted, they, they didn't think that stories about women's day-to-day lives was as interesting or as important as stories about war or about Europe or whatever. You know, if it was set in the prairies, you know, it also came of age when it was actually a radical act to set your work in Canada, to set it in Alberta, to set it on the prairies. Like that was, that's, that's a choice that you're making and you might as well just give up on ever being famous because nobody will ever read your work if you do that. So for sure, this, this idea that, you know, this very Eurocentric understanding of what is important, certainly someone like Beulah Crump Withers, she would not be considered important. I wonder if, you know, I was pursuing that in real life, somebody like her, I wonder what kinds of things I would come up against. Would I have difficulty finding grants? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Certainly, you know, the work I've done for this book that I'm working on right now about the sleeping car porter, it has been so interesting and devastating to learn just how little information there is about those men and even less information about their families, about those communities where they came from. That has been really hard. And it's partly because those stories were not valued. And I had a really interesting moment. It was a very telling moment when I was in the Winnipeg National Provincial Archives, rather the Winnipeg Provincial Archives, when I was looking for evidence of how working class people lived. You know, I just had no idea. This was early-ish, earlier on in the process where I knew so little. I, I didn't know. Did they have light bulbs in 1929? I, did they have faucets? I had no idea. Were there toilets? Were there running toilets? I have no idea. So I was trying to find just pictures of interiors. People have gas stoves. Did they have stoves? Whatever. It was so interesting going to the Winnipeg and Provincial Archives because you could find all kinds of photos of rich people's houses and whoever government official or whatever, right? But to find uh, interiors of regular people's houses or working class people's houses was pretty much impossible, except, except for if you were looking through criminal records and then you saw the insides of all kinds of people's houses. So it's like, oh, there's somebody's kitchen and there's a light bulb and cold water tap. Oh, and there's a dead body on the floor. You know what I mean? So it was sort of like, so that's the only time you would have any sort of documentation of people from that particular socioeconomic status. So it's been a ride for sure, just figuring out, you know, and of course, this is obvious. It's obvious, although I didn't really understand, I understood it on an intellectual level, but I didn't actually believe it. 
that archives are so curated and our versions of history and of what matters are is so are so also curated and certain people's lives are deliberately lost or omitted or just not registered do you see a literature as a tool to reactivate or let's say as an a form of activism or resistance to the absence of these stories and how do you think literature can function in a classroom in order to because as literary scholars or professors this is our field right within the classrooms that's where we work and interact with people who don't know these stories how do you see literature as a form of activism or form of resistance I've heard different writers talk about how writing your little book of fiction is not going to accomplish much. And I, I just don't agree. I think what it accomplishes is just different from what we understand as accomplishment. So I'll never forget the time when my little brother, he was coming up through high school. And uh, I remember him being quite judgmental about women and women's sexuality And he, as part of the, you know, his English class, the class had to read Tennessee Williams play A Streetcar Named Desire. And there's that character in there, Blanche Dubois, who's just treated so poorly. And I remember him coming to me and saying, you know, I felt really bad for Blanche. Like that was, she just, that wasn't fair. She wasn't treated right. Why did they do that to her? And he didn't say it in so many words, but he was basically sort of, he'd been converted or he'd come to the understanding that, you know what, maybe women aren't necessarily getting the fairest shake, you know, which was so interesting to me because he was not a reader, but he had read this book and it was like, huh, I guess the world is a bit different than I thought. And then you think of books like Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, other examples where one little book makes a huge change. Enough people read it and there's a massive change. So I do, do, do believe that Literature can be a form of resistance. It can be a form of activism. It's just you can't, as a writer, you can't actually set out to do that um, because then I think the work won't stand up for itself. Like there's no, I, I don't think writing that is, or fiction, because that's the area I'm most interested in, fiction that's paint by numbers where I have this activist agenda. If you write to that, I don't think you're going to have great art. I think the, the good art will come out of, you know, you noting this particular specific event and writing about that specific event that happens to include, you know, X, Y, Z, different components, and then it will work. So if you look at like Book of Negroes, for example, that was Lawrence Hill taking a woman's life and deciding to write about her life in detail. I don't think it was, I don't know if he originally thought of it as an act of resistance, maybe he did, but that book is so much more than that. You know what I mean? That That's part of it certainly, but it's also, it's a really well-executed, rounded character. And I think the value of fiction is that it's one of the few opportunities where we as individuals can get into other people's heads and understand why they might think the way they do. You know, some of the books that I find really interesting are ones that explore toxic masculinity but from a from the inside you know so something like fight club by chuck palaniuk i love that book you know and it's like it's 
those characters are terrible, but I get to be inside them and sort of figure out, okay, why would you think this way? What's, you know, what's the point? And then it's like, okay, you know, it's about reaching out and hearing voices from people you wouldn't normally hear from. And so I certainly hope, you know, when I'm writing fiction that I can reach all kinds of people. I'm not going to presume that I'm going to change the world in any major way, but maybe I'll change one, one person. And I, I would be totally fine with that. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. And I always know, I always make it clear when I teach in my course outlines or in the first, in my first lecture that I'm not going to teach European literature and I'm not going to teach Shakespeare just in order to give heads up for students of what's coming. And I noticed that as we move forward, the first question or the first, let's say, comments that I hear from them, why didn't we hear about Mm -hmm. that before? Suddenly, I would part intentionally, part like students uh, well to know, they wanted to know more. They would start connect what we read in the classroom with what's happening right now. But I found it really difficult when I was being a teaching assistant, trying to teach with a fair queen or like, be like, what, like, how can we connect that or any kind of medieval something related to England, you like, how can you connect that to what's happening right now? We have crazy things happening at this moment and we are compartmentalized ourselves in a bubble. Like we now go to the classroom, sit in a bubble, talking about old England. So there's this really hard to connect to that every day. But those stories that we are talking about of different authors, they have this power to bring activism to the classroom to make students think about what's happening right now at this moment. Because when I was teaching the other day, we witnessed the Haiti crimes against Asian American. They just make that connection about the curriculum proposed by our government in Alberta. Students just made that connection and start taking notes and observations about what's happening because the texts give them this chance to explore, go beyond the text. So I completely agree with you in the classroom, activism exists and literature can be part of that's so funny what you say about the fairy queen because i loved that book i have to say and i'll tell you why because i found the character of britomart so interesting so that female knight you know there's that character the monster i forget who it is who who spews books and there was that character who was both a man and a woman so this kind of intersex figure And so I found it, I'm always attracted to monsters and hybridity. And so that book was really interesting for me. And also the fact that it was Queen Elizabeth I, who was horrific, but also was this incredibly powerful woman. It was shocking for me to see that. So that's, that's so funny. I wish if you teach the fairy queen, because it seems now now you are taking interesting turn into that, instead of just teaching that the monstrous other by calling them names without contextualizing what's beyond those names. When you meet the other in the forest, it's always barbaric or just it's not European, it's not white, and the mission is to be destructive. And instead of having context and to show the racism and lack of knowledge within those texts. And again, yeah, maybe, Suzette, you should teach the fairy queen. <laughs> I'm not going to teach the fairy queen. I'm I not love gonna your... <laughs> but I, I remember I wrote my honors thesis on the fairy queen books two and three, and it was motherhood and duality or something like that. And I look at that piece of writing and it was a mess because I was very young. 
but it was also, I was so attracted to the monsters. I'm always attracted to monsters and what makes other, it's just sort of like my people. <laughs> so it would totally be coming at it from the monsters and the women in armor and the, you know, those are the heroes of this town. Let's forget about the rest of them. <laughs> and Queen Elizabeth I, in a way, was a monster in so many ways. You signed a petition to graduate students at the University of Calgary. It proposed a letter to cancel the comprehensive exam last year, and you were maybe one of the first ones to sign that petition. And grad students were excited for sure to have one of the professors on the list as quickly as you did. And it was really kind of instant. Once you saw it, you signed it. And others felt the need to kind of wait a little bit or never signed it. But grad students in general impressed with your action that was instant. What made you sign that petition? so quick just just a just a context that petition was to cancel the comprehensive exam that asks phd students after the first year to, to write an exam about the basically the european western canon and that petition was a very famous letter i guess and it was signed by most of the grad students and some professors in the department what made you basically signed that petition so quick? Uh, one of my heroes in life is Larissa Lai, and she signed it before I did. And so I was like, Larissa's signing it. I've got to sign it. And I also never liked the comprehensive exam. It just, you know, talking with you, talking with all kinds of students, it, it just seemed just such a canonical exercise that just seemed redundant to me. It seemed that it was just reproducing what so many courses had already done and so what was the point of it and I just it was breaking my heart just to hear you know I went to a um, I forget I think it was a seminar called decolonizing the dissertation and hearing the kind of violence that that list was forcing on students indigenous students BIPOC students I was just like either this thing has to be radically done or let's just get rid of it and it just seemed to me too that the conditions of the writing were so torturous, you know, where it's like you have, like, I think, I can't remember which cohort you were part of, but there was this, there was, you know, at one point students had to write three papers in three hours. And it was sort of like, why? At what point will we ever be in a similar situation where you have to do that? And then, you know, it got spread out, you know, where you could write three papers over a week or whatever. And I was sort of like, this just feels so old-fashioned you know like this is uh, an exercise from 20 25 years ago that I don't know what purpose it's serving you know I think that we should read eclectically for sure but why these texts in particular and, and it was holding people back from doing their work and doing the work they were interested in doing and I think as you know you've educated me in a huge way you know that when we talk about literature there's literature happening all over the world it's been happening all over the world for hundreds and hundreds of years and yet why are we concentrating on the literature from this little island like why is that the only literature well we know why and it's boring it's boring and it's old and when it makes Basically, when it makes people cry, I can't handle that. And, and, I would all, and I also thought about, you know, if I was put in a position of reading this work, you know, and then writing that 
writing those essays, I don't know how great I would do. I don't know how great a few of my colleagues would do being put in that situation. So why should it be imposed on people? And a lot of the texts as well were ones, like I say, you know, that students are exposed to already. So why are we just underlining it? Why are we doing this? And uh, yeah, that was kind of, I think that was me who did the exam within the three hour thing. Yeah. And, and it, I don't Chris Brown. Uh, yes, me and Chris, we did that within uh, three hours. And I, that was kind of, okay. I felt exactly what you were talking about. And I, I'm glad that this uh, petition was signed. And I think you were by that time uh, associate head also. Am I wrong? I think I was. Yeah. yeah. I think I had just started maybe. I think I had had conversations about the comp exam ever since the, like from the very first day I started. So yeah, yeah, I was, yeah, I was grad program director. Which was, uh, again, a very, it was an amazing act that you did, you and Larissa and being a graduate associate head. And I, th- I think that was amazing. Back to your character it's just so fascinating and because it's part of the can it's it's the canon and when she was talking about the barriers and the walls you you would wonder how or why would the gatekeepers would want something horrible like the canon or the comprehensive exam because edith from my reading from the way i understood her character struggling is and that's part of her struggle the gatekeeping why would you think someone who knows that this is something fundamentally wrong would like to keep it i think it's because i think it has to do with the way some of us were educated i think you can come up through a system 20 30 40 years ago and that's how it was done when you were a student so you can respond to that in a couple of ways, which is that you can decide, you know what, that didn't work. I don't want to impose that on anybody else. Or I went through that. Everybody else has to go through it too. So it's sort of like we went through the hamburger grinder of grad school. I went through it. So that's the only way to do it. And so that's what I'm going to perpetuate. And I think it's partly because, you know, as professors, you're not really taught how to be a professor. It's sort of all you've got in your toolkit is who taught you before. And so just imitating what they did or deciding I don't want to teach like that. And so trying to strike out in another way, I think, you know, the whole idea of best practices and best practices for pedagogy, best practices for research, that's all a pretty new, new thing. And so I, I wonder if it's partly not having ever been exposed to the alternative and also being worried about this is how you were trained and somebody decides that actually that's not the way to train someone, then who are you? I wonder if it's something as fundamental as that, as reproducing what you know, because that's all you know, possibly. That's me reading it generously, I think. Well, that makes sense. And because that's also sometimes can be hard on the people who might lose some yeah. privilege, right? And this is where you can think of who is the ally and who wants actually to work hard for the change, even though you know it's right and this is the right way we should do it, but sometimes you feel you need to keep your privilege. This becomes so problematic. And I think your novel is the best way I can, I mean, like talking about genre is really sometimes 
doesn't help because genres can make us think of a certain work in a certain way because we have ready-made definitions for works. For example, if it is fiction or if it is sci-fi or anything you can't you want to categorize it means you would read that book in a certain way so for example thinking of your novel as science fiction might within the western definition or the western canon we might think of it as the opposite of real but one of the most beautiful thing i read about your novel is as testimonial i would love to read it this way as testimonials as works that speak meaningfully through their modes of representation and registration of affect about the place of blackness in post-secondary context. And I think I'm very influenced here by, again, Karina Vernon's article. I just want to go back to something you said earlier about keeping your privilege. You know, I think it's also about keeping your authority, keeping your expertise, um, or your understanding of your expertise. And it's really scary when you're in a position, when you're a professor, to have to learn things, to have to not be the expert in the room. And so I think that maybe keeps people, you know, confined to this one way of doing things because then you become a student again. And as you know, being a student is you're in a place of vulnerability. You are, it's so much at the whim of other people. It's, it's hard to do. As far as genre goes, that's interesting you mentioned testimonial. I mean, I suppose that Edith Vane is just kind of, I suppose it is testimonial. I, I have, I've always loved, there was an interview that Salman Rushdie did with Eleanor Wachtel years ago. I think it was Eleanor Wachtel on her um, show Books and Company on CBC. I believe it was there. Anyway, where he talked about how writers just provide snapshots of life as it currently is. So it kind of doesn't matter what the genre is, whether it's speculative fiction or whatever, because we all know, you know, even if you're writing the most out there speculative fiction, it's grounded in some sort of reality, whether that's in character psychology or whatever. And so when I started writing Edith Vane, when I started writing the book, I was actually writing a horror story. I wanted to write a horror story. I wanted to write a haunted house book. And I just realized that my understanding of horror was, you know, you can, you can horrify people in a way that's thrilling and they feel safe, or you can horrify them in a way that is completely unsettling and makes them feel unsafe. And so I kind of ended up going for the unsettling, feeling unsafe kind of horror, because what I'm noticing in terms of feedback is that academics find the book absolutely unsettling and horrifying and graduate students find it horrifying. And it's simply because, you know, it's me just putting like cranking up reality, you know, just a little bit, like just not even a ton. Like I remember workshopping this book with a non-academic and I can't remember if it's in this book or if it was in just a draft of the book where it takes a character, whatever, 12 months to get a chair in their office. And so this person I was workshopping it with said that would never happen. And I said, of course it happens. It happens at universities all the time. It can take 12 months and a whole, you know, a binder full of paper to get an office chair. And they, they just didn't believe me. And so it was me just sort of sending up the surreality of academic life but I didn't have to push very hard really at all it was just me 
you know, part of it came out of, there was one day when I was at the photocopy machine and you know how the light just goes across and you can feel it just x-raying you and your face drying out and the dust and whatever. And uh, I'd been having a hard time at work for different reasons. And the photocopy machine suddenly broke down. And my first thought was this photocopy machine is racist. Like it's out to get me. And I remember thinking that's just wrong. Like what has this place done to me that when a photocopier breaks, I think it's racist. And it's because of all these microaggressions that had been, you know, where you just sort of, you get gaslit and you start to doubt yourself. And so I guess in a way it is a testimonial. It's a, uh, Edith Vane is not me in that she makes all kinds of choices I would never make. But one thing somebody asked me about this book was, how did you get into the head of somebody who is such a failure, you know, who's such a loser? And, you know, it's because whenever that new merit increment cycle comes up, you know, for me as a professor, I'm starting at square one. I don't get to rest on my laurels. You're only as good as your next book. You know, you're only as good as your next class. So it's, you're always, you're always, always, always running, running, running. And I think for BIPOC people in the academy, I think for women in the academy, it's, there's an extra challenge because it just wasn't made for us. It was made for monks. I mean, that's sort of where universities come from, right? Was monks. And then later it was for white men who have stay-at-home wives, and that kind of thing. And so the rest of us trying to figure it out, there are extra challenges. And I think the pandemic has been really, it's brought some truths to the fore, you know, in terms of who does what kind of labor and, and that kind of thing. Maybe because I witnessed those reception parties that you talked about in the, in the novel, I'm trying not to provide any spoilers, but if anybody who's listening to us didn't read that book, or that novel, I highly recommend that. Particularly if you are planning to be part of academia, please do read that book. The second thing, the Jack Rabbits, the parking lot. I walked all those spaces. And maybe that's why I keep insisting and asking these questions because I know all these details and I feel like you've been there the same places where I've been. And I felt the, the hostility of the walls, the hostility of everything. And walking at night to my car and the, on campus, you would see the jackrabbits jumping everywhere and going up and down the stairs. Now I feel after reading the novel that everything is, there's nothing else I can, if back to that question of genre, it's, everything is there. I didn't feel like there is anything out of the ordinary. I, this is how I felt. This is how the walls, this is how the <laughs> parking lot and the sinkhole and all of that is there. So I'm not sure how can you deny, not, not you, Suzette, anyone would just say, how is that being not real or, or sci-fi or it's back to the question of the genre. It's real. <laughs> Oh, oh, Mahmoud, you're cornering me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is real. It, it is real. And uh, I have seen and I have known people who have been destroyed. Which me, led me to my next question, because I was reading some opinions and reviews about the novel. 
and found some people talking about how being in academia on university campus helped in understanding the novel because as I said, I've been there, so I, I enjoyed reading the novel and highly, highly recommend the novel. But I would add to that, that I have an office across from yours, as I said, and I saw you a couple of times taking the stairs instead of the elevator. Okay, did any colleague or students approach you with interesting comparisons between characters, places in the novel with people and the places on campus? Yes. Yes, they did. Yep. And they asked me, is this character this person? Is that character that person? And I cannot answer. I cannot answer those questions. Where they, I don't want you to answer that question, but were they correct? Um, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Anything I, I say, I cannot answer. I cannot. No, com answer. no comment. <laughs> I love the answer. I love the answer. <laughs> well, because because I'm I'm just trying to translate a saying in Arabic that says the lack of answer is an answer by itself. So, uh, during a symposium held by Thea House, yeah. which is uh, Black Lives Out West, you mentioned. Now I'm quoting you, as a fiction writer of Black heritage, I want to pursue other fictional possibilities. My goal recently has been to write whole black fictional characters who have lives outside of racist violence and history. These contemporary characters are affected by racism, but reacting to racism is not their 24 seven concern. So I remember, I remember in the late 1980s when there were things like the appropriate voice conference, um, writing through race, a lot of activism. And I was definitely moving in the writing circles that were heavily, heavily engaged with that. And I was also hugely invested in it, but there was a point at which I realized that here I am going to all of these conferences about writing and I haven't written a word in a year. And it came to, and, and this is something I have wrestled with my entire, ever since, was the giant conference, Writing Through Race, I believe it was. I always mix it up with the appropriate voice because I went to the appropriate voice. I did not go to Writing Through Race. And I was given the choice of either going to the wedding of a friend or going to this conference. And I as much as I wanted to be at that conference and completely was behind the activism of that conference, I was not a writer and I felt like such a fraud. And I thought, I'm just gonna go to this wedding. This is a dear friend, I'm gonna go to this wedding. And so I went to the wedding and that was the origin of the first book I wrote. And so what I learned from that was that I realized that there was a lot of literature about racism and being aggressed that way. So oppression through racism and that kind of thing. But it was like, sometimes you just got to go to your friend's wedding. Sometimes you just got to go to the toilet. Sometimes, you know, it, it was just a moment for me where I realized that I don't think about this all the time. If I did, 
I would not be a whole person. Sometimes you just have to live your life. And when you're living your life, that's when you find your truth. Otherwise, they own you. They have you. The racists have won. If I'm thinking about this 24-7, they have won. They're inside me. And I'm not going to be that person. I'm not also going to be a trauma clown. You know, what Vivek Shreya talks about, which is that my pain is your is your entertainment. I'm not interested in that. And it's not that I think it's not important to have stories about racism, to have fiction about racism, to have poetry about racism. Of course, it's important. But I think there also needs to be an understanding that there's stuff beyond it. Otherwise, we don't get to live our whole lives. And I'm saying that from a place of privilege in all kinds of ways. But I would also like to be a writer who provides people like me joy and reprieve and a sense of a life outside of all of that stuff too. Just to be whole, just to be whole. And I think you did that also with some indigenous folks, you like some characters you have who, for example, make bad romantic choices or just being normal. And I think this is something really important to think of when you teach. And I learned a lot from that novel that when we teach these things, it's not always about victimization or because I remember teaching about indigenous like Turtle Island indigenous contributions and the students were kind of shocked that there's even contributions with our scientific inventions or just being normal human being instead of just the concept that it's always about victimization and being a victim but you also have a life that is really like any other life there's like the good people the bad people people are happy people it's just like what's happening on the daily basis yeah it's like when you know when you when i read a newspaper and i see a photo of a black person my immediate thought is okay it's a crime it's some sort of crime it's something something bad happened as opposed to oh that person you know won uh, their dog won the puppy parade or something like that it happens so rarely which is why i'm you know even though i i hate social media i kind of love instagram and just signing up for as many bipoc people as possible just to look at normal lives like people you know making bad clothing choices and you know liking stupid music it's like sure why not oh look at this incredibly boring picture of somebody's view from their window it's like of course of course in the novel and again i'm trying not to provide any spoilers there is the supervisor questions the authenticity of the Dr. Vane's dissertation when she was a PhD student. What would you like to tell us about that? Part of that has to do with, sometimes I see a really damaging pattern with supervisors where supervisors become incredibly jealous of their students. The more proficient a student becomes, the more they grow into themselves as a scholar, as a peer the more threatened some supervisors can be. And so I've heard just some horrendous stories. They're horrendous, but they're also kind of funny 
you know, because they're just so awful. And my partner also went through a really hard time with her supervisors where I could not believe that these were actual adult human beings being so incredibly petty and ridiculous. And so that moment where the supervisor questions the authenticity of Edith Vane's, the subject of her dissertation, was partly taking a look at that psychology, that really bad psychology that can happen. I don't, there must be a name for that. I don't know what it is. But then also the precariousness of being a scholar, of dedicating your life to something, dedicating years and making so many life sacrifices, and then having the rug pulled out from underneath you because suddenly that thing is out of date, or there's a piece of evidence that shows that, guess what, that person doesn't exist. I've heard of those things as well, and I just cannot imagine the heartbreak. Or because I, I teach mostly creative writing, you know, where you're working on this project, you think it's the greatest project ever. Oh, somebody's just published that book already on the same topic, which can happen all the time. So it, that's also kind of the horror, you know, the, <laughs> the horror potential of being in the academy is, you know, you've been in school for <laughs> for for so long, for, you know, a decade, if not more, and then suddenly, whoops, somebody else already published that book, or it doesn't exist, or, you know, this new piece of evidence has come out, or the person you're studying turns out to be a total jerk or something, you know, then it, then it can totally throw you for a loop. With the success of, uh, I would claim, of Dr. Edith Vane, the novel, what's your next move? What's your plans for the future? I always try to do something I haven't done before. So what I realized after I wrote Edith Vayner, maybe partway through, was that the last three novels I've written have had to do with school of some kind. So this one is about a university. Monoceros is about high school. Venus Hum is also associated with high school. And so I've got to get out of school so <laughs> that's basically how I feel. And I am also trying different points of view where the next book that's coming up is a historical fiction. I've never written a historical fiction before and I'm doing it basically because I've never done it before. So why not try it? Didn't Gertrude Stein or somebody say, if it's easy, why bother? So it's about keeping myself challenged because if I needed to write a book in a year, I could do it, but it would be a repeat of something I've already done. So it's about just learning new things and challenging myself and growing more brain cells. So the historical fiction is next. Uh, more details about that. I mean, is uh, can we get some glimpse about what is, uh, if you have any idea or if you can tell the audience a little bit more in details about characters maybe or what is it specifically about and or the general just general glimpse so because I know you have audience and uh, people are waiting for your work so if they can know a little bit about what uh, characters which kind of history it's going to deal with yeah so it's uh the working title right now is the sleeping car porter and I'm just about done I think it's set in 1929 and it's about a sleeping car porter who is on a train ride, who's working a train, a shift, basically, where he's coming from, I believe it's Montreal or Toronto. He's starting in Montreal or Toronto and then ending in Vancouver. And it's on the fastest train on the, uh, on the continent. 
which was, I can't name the company, but there was a train and it took 88 hours and 45 minutes to go from one side of the country to the other, excluding of course the Maritimes. And so I was really, I became really interested in this because I learned from Fred Waugh, I learned that sleeping car porters were all 99.9% black men, except for the occasional Ukrainian, I think. And this was a whole history I'd never heard of before. And I, I had no idea about it. And as I investigated it, I thought, this is actually really interesting. Actually, I should back up and tell the truth. So when I started at the University of Calgary, I had to talk about a future project. And back then, and up until quite recently, I was always of the mind that I would never talk about work in progress because I just felt it was too invasive and you need to have your private space in order to develop an idea. But, you know, part of the interview process was tell us about your project you're working on. And it was, it was like, there's no way I'm telling you what I'm actually working on. So I had this fake project, which I kind of just held up as a shield whenever anybody asked me what I'm working on. Here's this project. Here's this project. The sleeping car porter project knowing I would never, I would never work on this project because I just, why would I work on this? Anyway, so <laughs> as I went, I also, it was also a different time. Like there's just, Google wasn't as established, you know, there's not, it wasn't as useful. And as I went, you know, there were challenges like you have to apply for a grant. What's your, what are you going to apply for this grant for? Oh, here's my sleeping car project. Anyway, so I got a shirt grant for it. And so suddenly it's like, oh my God, I've got to actually do this work. And so, you know, I did my research and I was, I was you know, I was sort of like, this is actually kind of interesting. This is actually really interesting. And, you know, so I traveled to Winnipeg. I traveled to, you know, went through a whole bunch of archives and realized that this was actually fascinating. It was really, really, really interesting. And... I also realized that there were no gay men at all being recorded. And I thought, if I'm going to access this, I need to be able to access it somehow because it's, it was such just a huge challenge that not only would I have to go into the body of a man, I have to go into a, the body of a man in 1929. From what I understood, most of those men or the populations that were associated with the railroad were in Montreal and in Winnipeg and in Vancouver. I don't live in Montreal or Winnipeg or Vancouver. So it was like too many leaps, but I thought, okay, if he's queer, I can kind of do that. And then, you know, I also learned, what was the other thing? Oh yeah, I heard that they recruited from the Bahamas and I thought, my mom comes from the Bahamas. Okay, I can kind of do that. And then, you know, I was talking to a historian and I said, yeah, I think I'm gonna make it like during the prohibition. And there were some sleeping car porters who would smuggle booze up in their shoeshine kits. And I thought, I'm going to do that. And I was talking to this, but I was like, but it's Montreal and it's 1929. I, you know, I visited Montreal maybe, you know, 10 times in my life. I don't really know it. And I was talking to this historian and she said, everybody's written about that. That's boring. What, you know, what about, what about the porter who's from Slack, Alabama, who sees the Rockies for the first time? And I thought, I've seen the Rockies. I know how to do that. So it was becoming more and more, it was about trying to figure out, okay, how can I get into this head? How can I do it in a way that's interesting? And so the more I researched, the more I discovered the commonalities I might have with this character who at the time was named Ted. For a long time, he was called Ted. And then the clincher was that, you know, I had this huge pile of research, but I actually had no story. And Ted was just a cardboard cutout. And so I had to shop around for names and Baxter was just 
it sounded right. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's, it was sort of like there was enough meat in it that I could get into it. And then I thought, if I lived in 1929, what would I be reading? And I thought I'd be reading Dracula. I would be reading weird tales. I would be reading horror stories. And so I thought, why not make him somebody who's into scientific fiction, as they called it, or scientific fiction. And so that's how I kind of accessed him. And so basically the book is about this sleeping car porter in 1929 named Baxter, who travels across the country and the train gets caught in the Rockies for 45 hours. And so basically the whole class hierarchy and structure falls apart. I mean, basically the sleeping car porters, they, I wouldn't, it was a horrible job because they were basically the servant, you know, everybody's servant. They made very little money. They were allowed very little sleep and to be on call for that long with a bunch of demanding people in a train that's running out of water. And, you know, I can only imagine if you're caught on the tracks with the toilets, the toilets are basically just a hole. And so, you know, after about 20 minutes, if you're parked in the same place, it's going to become a latrine under the train. So it's just that that's basically what the book is about. Do you have any idea when it's going to be out? I'm working on it right now. I'm just doing the last edits and then I'm going to send it out to Coach House, who published it before they I hope they take it. If they don't, then that's going to add more time. But if I send it to them, I imagine probably a couple of years if they decide they want to take it. So it'll be a while. I can't wait to have my, even though it's two years from now, I just can't wait to have my hands in that. So I, maybe we'll have another interview to ask you more difficulty questions. <laughs> it's going to take me about two years to recover from the difficult questions that you've asked me today. So... <laughs> You mentioned that you are just moving away a little bit from the academy or from the university, let's say. So then what's the relationship then between all your books? And how do you describe your progression or development as a writer from your first book up to the upcoming one? That's a really interesting question. So I was thinking about that earlier. And I think that when I consider that very first book, Moon Honey, it reads so much like a comic book or a cartoon because it's just so broad and the humor is quite broad and the characters are just a lot more, they're a lot less nuanced. And I think as the books have gone, they've become a bit more, a bit sadder. And I think also, I think the characters are a lot, I feel that they're getting a lot rounder and more complicated and odd. But I realized too that, you know, as much as I say, they're not autobiography, there's, I try to say that. But then I look at the character in that first book, Carmen, she's in her 20s and has just had a terrible love affair. And it was so much what my life was like back then and figuring out who I was. And as each book goes, the character gets, the characters, even if they're, you know, not me clearly, because it's a man or whatever, they're gradually getting older and older and older and matching how old I am. And so, you know, there is, of course, a kind of autobiography. And, you know, as much as I joked about the sleeping car porter being my shield, my fake project, I think it was also I just didn't have the maturity, honestly, that was like 18 years ago, probably 20 years ago. And I just did not I there was no way I could have undertaken that project then properly, because I just, I don't think I'd seen enough of, or 
been exposed to enough people, different kinds of people to do it. So this book that I'm working on, The Sleeping Car Porter, the character is not in his 50s, but Edith Vane is far more, you know, so if I look at a continuum from Carmen to Edith Vane, they could be the same person. They really could. Same with Lyfun Kugelheim in Venus Hum. You know, that was also sort of, she was around the same age as me when I was writing that book. So there's definitely a continuum there. How the sleeping car porter will fit into all of this, I'm not entirely sure. I have to finish writing that book and then have a few years out to look back. But I'm just always trying to do something new. I'm trying to explore language in a way that's different. And what has been really interesting for me as I get older and as people ask me about my work is that I think I'm writing something completely different but I'm sort of continuing the same images, the same themes. I was a writer in residence at Widener University a few years ago. And the person there who was basically chaperoning me was teaching a short story I'd written ages and ages ago that I didn't even remember. And so he brought out the short story and I reread it and I thought, oh, there's that scene again. And it's a scene that appears in every single thing I've written. There's some variation on that same scene. So it's kind of like, I think I'm making these radical leaps when really I'm just rehashing the same old material over and over again. Amazing. Last question. And it's really easy. <laughs> For someone who reads your novel, somebody who's coming to the academy, your students, grad students, what advice would you give them? Somebody who reads Edith Vane or reads any novel? Oh, Edith Vane. Edith, I'm talking about Edith Vane. Because Edith, Edith Vane will give you that kind of impact. And particularly if you are an indigenous student or person of color. And I'm sure this, will be, this novel will be impactful and have some kind of resonance. What would you tell them? Karina Vernon told me, and I think she was quoting Roy Meeky. She said... Don't let the university be your center of gravity because it is a machine or a monster that takes and takes and takes and does not give back. You have to find the things that it will give back. And so it's really, really, really important to whenever you can, whenever you're in, you know, in the academy, whether it's as a student or as a professor, gravitate towards the things that give you joy you know whether it's that writing about that particular book because you know there are what I love about this job and this is in a way that I'm exactly like Edith which is that I love books like I love them you know I'm passionate about them and so I can think of no other job that I could have but that said it's a place where there are and this is probably like with every other job there are insecure people there are jealous people and just keep in mind that it's not a race um in that if somebody is ahead of you it's just they've got a different journey they've got a different process like you've got to find your way the way you find it and maybe you'll be quicker than other people maybe you won't be you have to think about money of course but it's also you are the one thing you can bring is yourself and your passions and your interest and remember those and don't let the university be your center of gravity. And of course I say that knowing that it's a lot of work. Sometimes it's hard to find sleep, 
but it's so important to find sleep. It's so important to have something outside to keep you grounded and give you perspective. Like I remember, you know, having a colleague who just suddenly quit. And I thought you can do that. Like it didn't even occur to me that you could do that. Like it, and it's sort of like, wow. You know, I remember there was, there was, you know, so there was terrible office politics happening at the UC. And, you know, I went away uh, with my partner at a, to a conference. I think we went to Spain or something like that. And I was there and I was like, none of these people care about the politics of the Department of English at the University of Calgary. And it was, it was this moment of shock. And I realized I have got to get a life and have some sleep and think about other things and take up a hobby or something. So I guess that would be my advice is find your passion, find your joy, but there are all those other terrible things you have to do. Don't let them own you make room for some life. And you know, the most stable people I've met at the university are people who have like children <laughs> because you know, kids are not going to, as you would know, I don't have children, so I don't have this experience, but kids don't care and you've got to take care of them. And that's how it is. And those are the people who seem to be the most together to me are people who have kids because they are forced to have a life outside of the university. I love that. And I cannot agree more. Just always think that the university is not the center of gravity. No. It's not the center of the universe. Life is way bigger than university. And when, once you're in an airplane and you fly and you a little bit over your university, just look down and see how tiny the university, then the whole city is so tiny and it's nothing. It's just a simple structure within a bigger and bigger structure. So I join you by asking everyone in academia. Academia is not everything. The university is not everything. It's just a part of life. It's a job. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's a job. It's shocking to hear. Yeah. Thank you so much, Suzette, for being with us today. That was interesting. And I, I know we can, we can talk about that forever. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Suzette Mayer by Mahmoud Abobnet. I'm Ryan Stern, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program in the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stokel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Abobnet, Paul Mounier, Joshua Whitehead, Mark Herman Lynch, Shuya Niu, and me, Ryan Stern. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.